Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Brian Zelmer from KU Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. And today we feature the fifth and final of our Interpod Squad interviews. Co-hosting this interview with me today is fellow presenter and podcast host, mural artist, fountain lighting designer, outdoor ice skating rink <laughs> chief, and many other things, including a good friend. Welcome, Josh. Sadly, all of that is true. Josh Benson rocking it from Marion, Illinois. You sure about that good friend part? It seems kind of cocky. <laughs> And today's test subject, I mean, interviewee, <laughs> is none other than our friend Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Brian. Hi, Josh. And that's Kevin Maynard with Quad City Arts. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, Kevin Maynard, Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. And before we go too deep into what you do, can you just give us like the elevator pitch of where you work and what your role is and what you kind of do in that role? Yeah. So I am the executive director of Quad City Arts and Quad City Arts is an arts organization that does basically just about everything in the arts. We have a performance series. We also operate two galleries, um, one in downtown Rock Island, one at the Quad Cities International Airport, as well as host a number of community events and public art, including sculptures and murals. And we also have a great program that employs young adults to create public art in our community. And my role there as the executive director is sort of to organize all of that and work with a team of seven to make sure all of that happens and really to make sure that our artist gets paid and, you know, we have the funding to continue to do these great programs. So before we get into the Quad Cities or 19 Cities, um, <laughs> let's start back in, in where you began in the arts uh, as a wee little mustachioed six-year-old Kevin Maynard. <laughs> I'm just assuming the mustache has always been there. Um, how did you get involved in the arts to begin with? And then talk to us a little bit about how that progressed for you. I actually really started getting into the arts as a, a young child doing church plays. And something a lot of people don't know is that I used to help run a vacation Bible school for our church and I was the puppeteer. So every morning I would have some sort of puppet thing with the kids. The first year I did, it was literally like just me and the puppet. Um, and I'm not a ventriloquist. So clearly like my mouth is moving while the puppet's mouth is moving. And then in future years, they put me behind a screen because who's believing that that goat is actually talking if my mouth is moving with it. So, so you're saying once they put you behind a screen the kids did believe <laughs> that the goat was actually so, talking no. <laughs> <laughs> i think you know that that suspension of belief for a little bit <laughs> um but about fourth or fifth grade i started playing football and loved football thought it was actually the greatest thing and then in eighth grade um it became more about winning. And I realized that like what I liked about football was just playing football with my friends. And then when it became about winning, I was like, this is not fun anymore. So I quit football and I had extra time. So I was looking for something to fill that time slot. And the high school in Geneseo was looking for men to round out the cast for Cinderella. So I, I said, yeah, I'm in and went and uh, was in the chorus for Cinderella and absolutely loved it and met somebody by the name. Well, now uh, Stephanie Taylor, and she got me involved with literally everything arts related in high school. And I just, I fell in love with that. And at one point I really thought that I was going to be 
uh, an actor. Like that's what I was going to go to school for. And thankfully before I even started college, I realized that like, that's not me. Like my brain wouldn't allow me to not know where my next uh, paycheck is coming from. And I have a lot of respect for people who can do that and like can do that hustle. But like, I think what I loved about performing was was more as a hobby. Like it wasn't where my meal was coming from. So I actually sort of did like a 180 and went to college to become an accountant. How did that seed get planted, Kevin? Uh, My older brother is is an accountant. I became a CPA and, you know, had a steady income, Um, seemed to be fairly happy and, you know, successful. And so I've always enjoyed numbers, enjoyed math. So I was like, oh, this makes, this makes perfect sense. So I, that's why I, I chose that when I went to college. Um, but yeah, then when I was at Western, I joined a, an arts presenting organization and that's what I, you know, I started learning about the arts industry, you know, what we're doing now, bringing artists onto campus. Um, I had a great mentor uh, named Mike Music who literally taught me everything I, I learned about the industry. He let me uh, help out with contract negotiations and reading contracts and, you know, learning that stuff. Thanks to him, he offered me an assistantship to continue on to my master's. I got an, an MBA um, and I ran the box office on campus while doing that. I didn't actually realize or put it together until my final semester of grad school that like what I enjoyed on campus about like, you know, booking artists and bringing them into campus, that that's a real job <laughs> that people outside of college get to do those things. Um, so I, um, you know, after my, you know, all that clicked in my head, I started looking at theater jobs and then landed my job at the Orpheum Theater. So tell us a little bit about the the Orpheum Theater, whenever you started there, what it was like and where it was at, and then what direction you were able to guide it as you were there. Yeah, so the Orpheum Theater was in sort of a rough position when I when I first started. At that time, I, w- I was 24 years old. Um, the theater itself was financially unstable. Um, it had sort of a, a little bit of scandal that, that came with that as... Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll just be honest, the, the guy that I was replacing um, was charged with sexual assault against a minor. Yikes. It was not the best environment to be brought into. But learning a bit more about programming and becoming you know, more involved in the community. One year later, we were able to write the ship financially. We we're able to pay off our you know, the people who we owed money to. I always think that like my first full year at the theater, um, I was always really bummed because I broke. I had a break even budget and I missed that budget by $600. I was $600 negative. Uh, on that year. And I was like, ah, like so close. Um, But then after that, you know, started turning a profit and we were able to, with that success, be able to do a capital campaign where we raised a million dollars to help renovate the theater, put in a new sound system and, you know, new carpet, clean up the front of the building, like all of these things, you know, but that, that took time. It was a, it was relationship building. It was programming. It was becoming connected in the community in a way that the theater hadn't had a director to do that in a while. You talked about your financial background. I'm just curious how that guided you or informed the way you approached the work? And did you see any benefits from having that kind of route versus some of the other routes that people get here? Yeah, I think there was a, a really great benefit just because like I understood the financial side of things. And I think that that's really what helped sell me to, to the board at that time. So, I mean, it was beneficial to get me that job, but I approached that job literally from a numbers aspect. When we talked about programming, especially my first couple of years, and we talked about rentals, like it was all about the bottom line. It was focusing on, you know, how much we could spend, how much we could make. And so there was some really great things that happened from that. And now I've realized that some of that financial background um, does hold me back a little bit. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So you know, when I was first booking artists, like I honestly was afraid to go too high with a guarantee or was afraid to, you know, 
I don't want to say take a risk, but to just, you know, push me a little bit out of my comfort zone because I'm very cautious when it came to the financials. Um, but after a couple of years started realizing that certain artists that you can go hire for, you can sell more tickets for different ways to, to work a deal. Um, so I was no longer focusing on things that, that, that we could afford at a very low range. And the first couple of years like that, that was the focus because I was so concerned about the financials. But then, um, you know, I started realizing that there are other ways that I can balance that where we can pay a bit more, sell more tickets, you know, those kind of things, um, and not be as cautious and as conservative as I, as I was with that financial approach. It sounds like it was a gradual learning curve for you to get to that point. Yeah. At what point in your career would you say they kind of met and matched up where you have a good balance of both sides? Honestly, my, my final year at the theater, um, I spent about five years at the theater and that was about the time where I think that really balanced out. Um, and then when I came here to Quad City Arts, like it was, I mean, it was a, a whole new world. I mean, a whole new ballpark as far as, you know, what I was doing. Um, but like it also helped me, you know, make that adjustment as well and become a little bit more calculated on that front. Did you feel like artistically it was really holding you back as well to not take those risks before you became more comfortable with that balance? Yes and no. So I think artistically we were doing some really great stuff, but I think the reality is that, that the community wasn't willing to, to take the risk on something that maybe they didn't know or a genre they didn't know. So that was holding us back. So we were able to, you know, book a show that would break even or make a little bit of money. Um, but once we started being able to take that risk, more people came out. And the, what I really learned was that the more people that would come out, the more they were willing to follow me into the things that they didn't know. So those shows when we were, you know, breaking even and when we would book a show like that, more people would come because it became less about, you know, oh, I know who this artist is. It was like, oh, it's going to be at the Orpheum Theater. So we know it's good because they haven't led me astray yet. And with the reputation that the organization had, how long do you feel like it took you to rebuild that reputation from where it was in the gutter before you started? It took three years. You know, my, my fourth and fifth year in the community, it was, you know, it's that it's that overnight success. People were like, oh man, like Kevin came in town and just changed everything. And most people were like, this guy just showed up. And really I'd been there for three years working sort of behind the scenes, trying to get people to know that the theater was there and to know the things we were doing. And really after that, like three years of, you know, steady programming, steady financials, working with our donors and sponsors and really delivering on the promises that we kept telling people that is when we were able to sort of make that shift. And we made, I made that sort of financial shift. We started bringing in some larger acts and then really started going, Hey, um, if we want to continue to do stuff like this, we need to raise some money. And that's when we went into the capital campaign after three years of me starting there. When I started, that was the plan. The board was like, well, we're starting a capital campaign. And I was like, Oh man. And I pushed that off until I was like, I think now we can like, let's write the ship and then go into um, a capital campaign. Kevin, can we jump a little bit now forward to where you're just arriving at Quad City Arts? And it, it's a very different kind of work that you had at the Orpheum. First of all, I'm curious more of what you do. You kind of touched on the highlighted version and I've known you for a year now, year and a half, and I still don't quite understand everything about <laughs> Quad City Arts. Can you go a little bit more into you know, what, what it is you do and then how you do it? So Quad City Arts is a, a regional arts organization. And so we are... And how many cities does Quad City Arts serve? <laughs> well, 
this is where it gets complicated. So Quad City Arts actually services six counties, um, three on the Iowa side, three on the Illinois side. In Quad Cities proper, um, if there's actually five cities, and depending on who you talk to, between seven and 19. (laughs) (laughs) And and just for the listeners, they hear us call ourselves the quad producers. And I've been asked multiple times, why are you calling yourselves the quad producers when there's five of you? And it's because they missed that story. It's because quad cities is not four cities. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For an accountant, (laughs) you guys are super bad at math. I I will tell you one of the things that really cracked me up my first year, my my first like month here, they had a a mayoral forum um, that the chamber hosted. And so it was like, oh, the the city's mayors are coming together where they're going to talk about, you know, the state of the quad cities. And I went there and there were nine people on that stage. (laughs) (laughs) And I went, I'm really missing a couple here. Um, But the reality is, is that, you know, I I think what what everybody would tell you here and especially like our our visitors bureau would tell you, like the Quad Cities at this point is a region and not just, you know, the core cities. So Quad City Arts, we are part programmer, but also part arts council. So there are some aspects of our job where we focus on the advocacy work of the arts as well as you know, granting. So we have a regranting program we call Arts Dollars, which we always tell people like what we're doing is we are writing the big grants so that smaller organizations don't have to. So we're doing all that large paperwork and the final reports so that we can give out, you know, grants between a one and $5,000 that for a smaller arts organization uh, is like a game changer, but the, they don't have the ability, the time to write a grant for a hundred thousand dollars. Outside of regranted, we also have two visual arts galleries, um, one in downtown Rock Island, one at the Quad Cities International Airport that showcases regional artists. And so for us, a regional artist is within a 250-mile radius. And all of these spaces are, are juried. Um, so there is a, a panel that that reviews um, these and selects what's going to go into both of those spaces. In, in the visual realm, we also have a public sculpture program, which uh, rotates public sculptures throughout all of our cities. Um, you know, in a in a given year, we will swap out um, like 20 sculptures. So 20 will come in, 20 will go out. Um, and then we also have this really great program called the Metro Arts Youth Apprenticeship Program, which pays young adults ages 15 to 21 to create public art under the guidance of a professional artist. Um, these are all paid assistantships because um, we believe that from a young age, like artists deserve to be compensated and they should be taught that from a young age that they, that it's okay to be compensated for your artwork. In fact, you should be compensated for your artwork. So we um, make sure that, you know, we pay them to sort of hone this craft, build this talent and, you know, give them opportunities to do that outside of that program as well. On that note, is exposure considered compensation? Um, You know, absolutely. being sarcastic. No, (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. Um, Outside of the visual arts service, we also have community events. Um, So some of that is our Festival of Trees, our Chalk Art Festival, um, a Festival of Fine Art, and really all sorts of events that we do that are, you know, public events to in our community. And then we have our performance section, which is our visiting artist series. And that brings in national and international touring artists and primarily puts them into our public schools. And about six of those will do a full length public performance as well. Um, So we don't actually own a venue. Um, to where, you know, we have the gallery space, but we don't actually own a performance venue. So we actually work with all of our schools and different um, theaters in our community to make those events happen. Now, is there anything like a parade or anything attached to the uh, Festival of Trees? 
You know, we all, we do have the largest helium balloon parade in the Midwest that happens at Davenport, Iowa, as part of the Festival of Trees parade. It is honestly the best parade I've ever been to. So, Kevin, you're, I have two different questions. But first, you're a regranting organization, and I'm sure that comes with a lot of rules and a lot of um, regulations because of where that money comes from. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, we work with a couple different um, funders to make that program happen. And so one of those funders is this is the only arts council agency. So obviously those dollars can only be given to um, organizations in the state of Illinois. Um, the other organization is a, is a regional organization um, at, or a regional foundation. And so we're able to, to grant that on both sides of, of the river. So for part of that, it's just making sure that we're spending the money in the right places, um, you know, allocating it that way, but then also making sure that it aligns with our funders' um, needs and what we wrote that grant for. Most of our funders for this program um, are pretty lenient on what they will fund. Like the biggest thing is that it obviously has to support an artist or an arts organization. Can you dig a little bit more into the logistics of keeping those funds from Illinois designated for Illinois and what that actually looks like from a technical standpoint. Actually, can I tag on to that? Are there different advisory boards for these different areas or different states as well? We'll start touching the advisory boards. We do have have a grant panel um, and it's actually made up of, of, of regional folks. And we actually usually try to get one or two people that are from outside of the Quad Cities um, to assist in, in reading those grants as well. Um, it is the same panel for, for both sides of the river. Um, they sort of recommend everything as, as a whole, and then we worry about the, the breakdown of the financials. Thankfully, like where the dollars come from um, rarely sort of plays in because we're now at a level where both of our funders are, are at a, a fairly high level. So we just sort of need to make sure that there's kind of an even mix. It's very rare that we get into a position where the grants that the panel are recommending um, have to be rearranged because of where the, the organizations are located. Um, but for us internally, to make sure that we separate those dollars, we obviously like we create budgets, we create spreadsheets to make sure, you know, that we break down where those dollars are located. Part of that grant application is is where they are located um, to make sure that we're sending the dollars to you know the right places internally we also earmark that in our in our quickbooks um, to make sure that you know those dollars are are restricted dollars for you know that program but also you know sort of that state as well and you talked about events that you produce and present um, but you also support local organizations is there ever any kind of conflict about, you know, people saying, oh, you're competing with us and as and supporting? Like, I just are there any issues with that kind of dichotomy? Less and less as as time goes on. You know, there's always that that sort of concern um, with arts dollars. Um, we also do not um, support anything that would support our organization. So, for instance, if somebody wanted to write a grant to give them enough money to put a mural on on a wall like and but they want quad city arts to facilitate that mural or they want it to go through the metro arts youth apprenticeship program like we don't we we don't accept that um, because we don't want to muddy the waters on on sort of you know you know we're granting dollars that are going to come right back to us uh seems a bit unethical um but also i mean there's so many things that are happening in our community and so one of the things that we always talk about is you know that concept of uh, a rising tide raises all ships the more things that are happening in the community, like the more we're seeing attendance number rise uh, across the board. 
in the realm of art begets art and a rising tide lifts all ships, as you have grown as a granting organization, have you seen other entities and other arts organizations sprout up as a result of the rising tide that has bolstered the community and made your impact stronger? Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard sometimes to, to draw that direct line, that direct correlation. However, when we start looking at, at different sectors, so when we start looking at, you know, theater, like we're seeing a lot of a lot more theater organizations pop up. We're seeing more attendance numbers happening at some of the theaters that we've been able to support and we've been able to sort of assist through some tough times, um, you know, with, with our grants. Um, one of the cool things that we're really seeing is on the visual arts side. People write grants to arts dollars to fund you know, some mural projects. And, you know, there are muralists in our community that have a full-time job creating art. I mean, because of some of these grants that we're doing, but we're also, you know, once you start putting public art into the community and you start seeing more murals, like it just, you know, increases that. Like somebody's got a mural on their building, like, oh man, like I want one too. But then you start seeing people who come into a community and are taking photos of those murals. They're tagging those murals like on social media. They're telling people all about them. So it, it drives tourism. It drives people into your community and it drives people to your downtown. So, you know, we are seeing a lot of that, um, you know, and I think that there is, you know, anecdotal evidence that it is directly related to the work that we're doing as well. Are you seeing a correlation between attendance for community theater and music events to the saturation of visual art form within the community? I would say that's a really difficult one, especially right now, um, because, you know, we are seeing, you know, post-COVID about, you know, audiences about 80% across the board when we're talking to most of our organizations. It seems to be more events happening, um, but I don't know that those numbers are, are increasing the way that, you know, we thought they were, thought they would, you know, five years ago. Kevin, you've taken on some really incredible and exciting and even I'd say bold projects, including which we've talked about a little bit on this podcast, like enacting pay equity. And I just want, if, if you could just kind of go through it a little bit deeper than you did previously about what the impetus was, first of all, how you got the idea, how it came to you, how you introduced it and implemented it, and then what kind of time frame did this take to roll out? I think it's always sort of been on my mind starting out when I was at the theater, um, you know, and being in an organization where finances were really tight and knowing that I felt that that team should be at a higher level, but like it just couldn't sustain it. But figuring out other ways that, that we could um, add to their benefits package. So for instance, at the theater, you know, we added health insurance. Um, you know, that was one of the things when I started, like I negotiated health insurance for myself. And then when I, you know, fully joined the team, I realized like nobody else here has it. Like that seems so, you know, it was like, all right, let's figure out how to pay for health insurance. And then we start focusing on, you know, increasing wages, those kind of and things. And that's not a little thing. No, no. Um, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, it is, it's hundreds of dollars a month per employee. And that, that number goes up every year. Um, so, you know, it, it started there. Um, and then, you know, when I moved to Quad City Arts, there's just, there, there's a lot of things that I started realizing that you know, sometimes seem like a, a like privilege in my life, for instance, you know, health insurance, um, you know, having certain things and then starting to look at what are we paying all of our team members across the board. So when I started here, we had to hire somebody for a position. I, I can't remember what the position was at that time. And the first thing I did was I, I wrote the job description and I put what we're hiring it at. Selfishly for me, it was like, I don't want to fall in love with someone 
and then tell them, and then they're like, oh, like I can't come to work for you for that amount of money. Like I didn't want to waste my time. I didn't want to waste their time. Like that was my whole reason for doing it at first. As soon as I did it um, and I sent it to, you know, our team, I had different members of the team thank me for that. You know, they're like, thank you for being transparent about what we're hiring this person at. Um, but then I started realizing that it, it serves a larger purpose than that. That led me to sort of really look at, at our wages. And I sort of had this fear of like, you know, I, I never wanted to be the top of an organization and, you know, be like one of those stories where like the CEO makes, you know, 400 times what the lowest employee makes. And so I started looking at, you know, some of those ratios just with our part-time employees, started looking at different things, but that led me to just looking at what we're paying our team in general. Is it sustainable for the region, but also is it what they should be at in the industry? Like not just, you know, for our region, but like, is, is this competitive? How, how did you find the answers to that? Because back then, not a lot of people were sharing. No, no. One of the things that I did was I pulled some information, I want to say from Americans for the Arts. And this was like old data from like 2015, 2016 area um, for the information that they had for across the industry. And so you could break it down to, you know, population as well as, you know, some sort of job. So it was like, okay, well, what are our jobs sort of line up in the ways that they've described that? And then I took cost of living increases for our region and just added it year over year to see like, this is where our team should be. And that's what I proposed we move our, our wages to. And it, it was a jump. Um, and the first time I proposed it to my executive committee, um, they shot me down. They said, nope, um, this is too much. This was 2020 um, when I was, and so I like, I get it. Like I understand, you so know. So a financially stable time. Yeah, yeah. Everything's going like really great. <laughs> Was this before the pandemic or during the pandemic? This would have been during. Yeah, it was during the pandemic when we were talking about this. Um, but like I, you know, part of that was like sort of seeing the writing on the wall, like people like having enough time outside of work, you know, different COVID benefits um, and going, you know, starting to see people going like, I don't, I'm not going to come back to work for nothing. And we, we weren't, I mean, we were paying our team better than that. Like we didn't have that issue. We weren't going to be worried about them, you know, wanting to jump ship because they could, you know, make more money doing various other things. They also love what, what they do here, like, which is what I love about my team. Um, but I could see that, you know, costs are rising. Like, how do we, and I felt that some of our team should have been, should have had been paid higher. So um, my, my board shot me down. And then sort of the interesting thing is you started seeing all these, you know, articles in the New York Times and, you know, local papers about, you know, people quitting because their wages aren't, aren't high enough or looking for other jobs, those kind of things. And one by one, my executive committee started messaging me or sending me emails being like, I think we need to adjust wages. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, we do. And so we did. And, and we, what I originally proposed is I wanted to jump everybody in one year and just like, let's take a big cut here. Um, they actually were probably smarter than I was and we phased it in. Um, and so now one of like what we try to aim as a commitment is, you know, we are trying to keep wages, um, where they are, but like move them incrementally with the cost of living. Um, cost of living allocated to the mid, uh, like to the Midwest, like not the national average, but the Midwest which tends to be just a little bit lower um, just because, you know, food costs are a little bit different here. You know, my cost of living in Rock Island is much lower than, you know, 
people's cost of living in, in New York City, sure, that kind of sure. stuff. So, I mean, we, we've had some big years with cost of living increases, um, and so far we've been able to commit to that and make that happen. Um, we also are very honest with our staff about like when we made that big jump that like we told them like we are correcting some things and don't expect, you know, this big of a jump in future years. The other thing is that it takes a lot of financial oversight. For instance, in, in one of those years, we jumped, you know, I think like 13, 14% in payroll um, to make some of those adjustments happen. Um, so, you know, we have to make sure that, that we can afford that and that we can afford that into the future, like keep that sustainable. One of the ways that we do that is obviously like, you know, we, we fundraise, we do grants, we, you know, focus on our programming that can bring in more, more revenue. Um, but when we talk about our staff and we talk about our team and we talk about, you know, our programs, we don't talk about our staff as overhead. Um, they are a program cost. Like I cannot have the visiting artist series without Margot. I cannot have our visual arts galleries without Don Wolf or Metallo. Like those things don't exist without those team members. Um, but also like they don't exist without that support staff either. You know, with our marketing person, Alex, like if she doesn't tell people about those programs, they also don't have attendance. So like it is, these are all program costs and they are not overhead. That's super important work and, and kudos to you for implementing that. How has the the people that you had to convince in the beginning, have have they fully come around and, and been supportive of it now? 100%. They, they see the commitment of the staff. I mean, the staff has always been really wonderful here. I mean, the team really do believe the mission and love what we do. Um, but when you start telling them, you know, that like, Hey, you're doing a great job, but we also want to make sure that you, you know, are, are that, that you have a, a good wage, like that, that's important. Speaking of the staff, how was their reaction to all this? I'm sure they were happy, of course, but I mean, did you see any other impact? Was there any other feedback directly from them? Mostly just a, a general like happiness about that. But also I think, you know, one of the things that we talk about is when we post a new position, I mean, it has the salary range right on there. I mean, we don't, we don't hide that. I mean, obviously like we're, we're still not, you know, sitting around the table comparing salaries and that kind of stuff. But I mean, if somebody is being hired into our organization, they know the range that they're going to be within there. There is a reality that for some of the team, we would not have had to have made that adjustment. Um, they would have stayed here regardless. Um, but if they weren't, like if they left, like this is what it would cost to replace them. And if we're willing, if we're willing to pay somebody else that much to replace mm -hmm. them, like why aren't we paying that person that much? I don't know if you've seen This Is Your Life, but we have a special guest what joining us. What is this? Son of a bitch. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Danielle Van Hook from The Alden, also co-host of There's No Business Like. Hi, Danielle. Hey, that son of a B sound means that it is time for your <laughs> lightning round. <laughs> gotcha. Oh man, this is this is this is a gotcha moment. <laughs> Thought I was gonna be all uh, all safe on this one. Surprise, lightning round. <laughs> Kevin, are you ready? Absolutely not, but let's do this. <laughs> let's do this. Kevin, your lightning round. One, is cereal a soup? Ooh. <laughs> If you could collaborate with any artist on a special program, who would it be? Carol Burnett. Ooh. Ooh. Carol Burnett's been on my bucket yeah. list to to present for years, and it's probably not going to happen, but oh, would I I would just love that. What famous person has the most comparable mustache to you? Raleigh Fingers. Um, do you know how to use a knife for eating purposes? <laughs> I've never seen you use a knife. Uh, I do. 
I do. Yeah. I mean, are we talking like, you know, just for steak or like, you know, when you want to get really fancy and use both at the same time? Because that is not a skill that I was taught as a child, um, but can do now. I mean, it took you how many years to learn how to use a fork? (laughs) I mean, of course you weren't taught that skill as a child. You know, the frightening thing about this is I have a feeling that there are people that really believe that I don't want to use a fork. (laughs) Josh is racing. His hand. You're a good so, sport. Yeah. You're a good sport. Yeah. I just love chicken uh, tenders. <laughs> <laughs> Another handout chickens. Uh, what sport do midfielders play? Soccer. <laughs> um, have you ever fallen on a long run? Yes. Yes, I have. Elaborate. The one that always comes to mind because it's it's happened more than unless once. it's gruesome, um, then don't. No, 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 no. Um, there is there is a bridge uh, that or a government bridge um, that crosses uh, the Mississippi River from Rock Island to Davenport. Um, one time, I was running with my sister, and I was running, and I I hit like a little gap, and and I went down, like I just dropped straight down, like hard. Um, but what always cracks me up about this is that my sister has kids, and she treated me like her four year old son had fallen, and like was like, oh my god, is like leading down to pick me up, like get off of me, what are you doing? <laughs> How's this lightning round going? Are we doing real quick on this? I mean, it was over two minutes ago. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, just as quick as I came in, I'm out. Bye, Danielle. (laughs) So now that we're back to just us, Kevin, um, as you know, because you had it away from me for a long time, we have recovered the time machine. I would never. We have it working again. Hey, where'd you find that, by the way? I'm not sharing that, and you will not borrow it anymore alone. Okay. Um, But I'm going to let I'm going to let Josh use it right now to bring us back in time to a point in your life. So I want to go back to that moment when you decided, Hey, accounting's not really for me. Um, there's actually a career there in the arts. Um, what advice would you have for yourself at that point during your MBA in realizing that arts administration was an actual career path? If I could go back, I would tell myself that there are a lot of opportunities in the arts, um, that there are more things that you can do aside from running a venue or programming a venue. Um, I've probably learned that more in the past two years than any point in my career, but I think I would tell myself that, um, yeah, I think that's it. So Kevin, I know professional relationships are very important to the, the type of work you do and, and how you've advanced the way you have. I'm just curious, and I'm not talking about mentors necessarily, but just simply your networking and your professional developments today. For someone who's new in the industry or a student or somebody who maybe is just a little bit isolated, what advice do you have for them to start networking and building relationships in the in the industry? Um, just do it. I know that sounds like crazy, but like just well, you- How? How do they do it? I mean, Brian, just you talking about me having to network, I can feel my heart start to race. Um, I, it probably comes as a surprise to a lot of people, but that is one of the most anxiety ridden environments for me is having to like go in and and work a room and, and talk to people. So what I do, um, is to just do it. I, you know, introduce myself to folks or I ask colleagues to introduce me to people. And Kevin, is it ever the disaster you fear when you have that anxiety? 
Oh, absolutely not. Never. It has never once gone like horribly awry. You know, the thing is, is that especially at conferences and when you're at an event, like there is always something that links you to that. Like you're all there for a reason. Like either you're all there to see the same event, you're all there for the same conference. And honestly, there's probably at least a third, if not half of that room who feels the exact same way that you do, um, who is just like, oh man, like, how do I do this? How do I make this happen? And so really, I just, just do it. Like I convince myself of like, Hey, this is something that you need to do to, to get better. And honestly, it's, it's worked out really well for me because I've learned so much from people that I have, I've met. So Kevin, thanks for sitting with us. I learned a lot more about you and I can't wait till the ladies join us in a moment and we get to grill you a little bit further. Me too. All right. Hey, we are back. So Kevin, we finally got to listen to your interview and quite frankly, I'm impressed. Thanks, Danielle. I appreciate that after getting to the end of a of an interview where I truly learned a ton that I'm going to take with me. But Ooh, here it is. <laughs> who is the man behind the mustache? What does he do when he's not working? Balancing spreadsheets. That's all I do. All right. What do you want to know? I'm an open book. Oh, we're going to find out. Yay. <laughs> In what I'm going to call a rainbow round because you get a rainbow after the storm. Good. All right. Number one, where are you from? I was born in Spring Valley, Illinois, uh, and then my family moved to Princeton, Illinois, and then to Geneseo, which is where most of my family lives, which is pretty close to the Quad Cities. All right. What did football player Kevin want to be when he grew up? A football player. <laughs> I wanted to be a pastor. Yeah, I didn't see that coming, did you? I didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, not at yeah. all. Well, good for you. Um, did you ever have any other? <laughs> not touching that one. I just, Let's go. Yeah, I mean, I'm not that. I'm not a professional enough uh, interviewer to know where to go from there. So. Um, did you have any other non-arch jobs? Well, my first job was detasseling corn, uh, which I think most people do in the Midwest. You can't talk about that on on that. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> anyone else confused? Because I've never heard that term. Before. You've ever heard detasseling corn? <laughs> What it about sounds like it's not a, do we need a do we need a not a suitable for work warning? No, no, no. Okay. I mean, I mean detasseling like... corn just is basically it helps, you know, so that the corn doesn't meet. It's just really I mean, I know you guys boring. get really bored out there and in the cornfields and I mean I got some stories. <laughs> it's it's when you start pulling on the silk. So. Well, this is now a farming podcast. See, this is the content I was looking for. Um what were some of your favorite roles you did as an actor? Um Probably my all-time favorite would be Eddie Pazinski in Over the Tavern, uh, which is a great trilogy um, set in Buffalo, New York, and playing George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life in a radio play. Those are probably my two favorites. Um, other than being the like clearly amazing leader of Quad City Arts, uh, what else do you do in your life for fun, for not fun? Yeah, I guess outside of work, I, I, I run. Uh, I like to run long distances that most people would just take a car for. And then I also play deck hockey. So our final question is, and this is you, this is not optional, is I need to hear some of that vacation Bible school goat voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin, you do need to get out of our camera, though. Only your hand can be in the shot because we can't believe it if we see you. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. That's a good point. Just... Just, oh, sorry. Is this... Yes, that's perfect. 
for our listeners, he's turned his camera and all we could see is his hand. So it was just like, it would just be my voice. And then it was like introducing, like his name was like Billy the Goat because that's how those things go. <laughs> like that voice was like, I braved rainstorms. I braved snowstorms. Bravo, bravo. That was a good voice. I don't know. That's all I got. <laughs> Do you want me to end it for you, Daniel? And that was the rainbow round. <laughs> Pause for sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, you are obviously very knowledgeable about a lot of aspects of your job, but I know in your transition from the Orpheum to Quad City Arts, one aspect of your job that was a little bit of a learning curve for you was diving more into the visual arts side of things. Um, so what was that like really trying to learn a whole new medium and learning how to administer programs like murals and visual arts education programs and art galleries? Because um, while we talk a lot about performing arts, visual arts are also a really important component of our industry because a lot of venues also do have art galleries and do similar programming to what Quad City Arts does. That's a great question. I would say that first and foremost, I relied on our visual arts director here. Um, Dawn has 20 plus years experience um, in that role. Uh, so she knew how to handle all that. And so I did what I do with with most jobs or the way I, I approached uh, the theater was just listening and learning, like having conversations. And so learning how the gallery side of things works, you know, learning learning how we jury our, our shows, but then also talking with other colleagues in the industry on the visual arts side of learning how they jury their shows to figure out, you know, how can we bring in more artists that uh, on that side of things. With the public art aspect, I mean, I just reached out. I reached out to, you know, communities and organizations that I thought were doing really cool work in, in public art. So um, one of those being Marshalltown, Iowa is a small town, but they've got a really great thriving mural and public art scene. And so it was just reaching out to their executive director and going, how did you do this? What's the best advice? Amber's advice there was just do it. And you're not going to do it perfectly, but you'll learn from it. And then the next time you'll do it a little bit better. And then I have time after that, you'll do it a little bit better. She's like, they have done dozens of murals. And she's like, and I'm still fine tuning that process. That was a big confidence boost. Just going, you know what? Um, somebody who's been doing this a bunch of times is still learning. So it's crazy to think that right out of the gate, I'm going to be perfect at it. And that's what we're doing and fine tuning that process. I did want to go back, though, and ask you a question about when you were talking about running the Orpheum mm -hmm. um, after you were basically in the black after a year of running that and then you know three years later like pretty prosperous and you said you were like 24 so you were pretty young we kind of talked to katie about this earlier of running a historic theater at a very young age like that is like pretty incredible statistics like in three years that's a lot to do were you running at an unbelievable pace like was there more staff there were you kind of headed towards burnout it just it feels like that's something that like you can only do when you're young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, it was a smaller team than I have now that worked at the theater. And I think we were all pretty motivated. Uh, so that definitely helped. About the time that I left or when I, when this job opened up here, I think I was burnt out um, from doing that. Um, because it, you're right, it, it, was, it was a lot. Yeah, it was difficult. So Kevin, I've got a really serious question for you. Everyone knows you as the mustachioed man. You've got the handlebar mustache. When did the mustache come in as part of your uh, your look? It was actually at an Arts Midwest uh, when I was working for the Orpheum Theater. I had a full beard. I wanted so badly to shave that beard um, because I was just like really over it. And I 
it happened like while I was at the conference, but I thought it would be ridiculous if I shaved it in the middle of the conference. <laughs> um, so I, I waited and my buddy, Tim, who is also our box office manager at the theater was at this conference and we were talking and I was telling him like, I just want this off my face. And he said, he's like, please just for one day, will you shave it down and just twirl up your mustache? And I told him that is the dumbest idea that I have ever heard. <laughs> And I went home, got out of that, after that conference, and I shaved my face, kept the mustache, uh, looked up online how to wax it, and I waxed it, and I went, oh, I like this way more than I should. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, 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 I kept it for a few months, and then I shaved it for a month, and then I, and then I brought it back. Um, and I've had this iteration of the mustache for, I think, seven or eight years now. I think maybe you should have stuck with your first thought. <laughs> 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 Some people do believe that. I think drastically changing your facial hair midway through the conference would be hilarious. <laughs> I thought about it. I really did. I just hated it. Trim it and then go down to goatee like, and mutton chops and then just some mustache and mutton chops and then take the mutton chops off. Yeah. Um, I also really love the conversation or the point you made about staff not being overhead, Kevin. And I, we've discussed it a little bit before about with grants, like they have restrictions or you can only, you know, a lot of grants are only for programming costs. So what are really some practical ways that you raise money or your organization raises money for staff salaries? Because there are a lot of restrictions on grants where you can't include staff salaries as a part of your request. Yeah. So one is we loop salary costs into program costs. And so unless a grant or a funder specifically says that they do not fund staff salaries, um, that's the only time we will ever re remove those costs. And there are times that there are certain programs or certain times that we do not go after those grants or take those dollars, because if it's not going to cover staff time, um, we can't do the programming. One approach that I've recently learned, we have a, a consulting fee. Um, so like, it's not a staff salary, but it is like, it's paying for a consultant because cities are used to paying for, you know, consultants and architects for construction purposes. Um, so if we just word it as a consulting fee, they're like, oh, we can pay for that. But for us, like it's allocated towards staff time. And for the most part, most of our donors support that because on the flip side of that is like, if we're paying our team, well, they can also go support our sponsors or our donors businesses, or just, you know other businesses in the community. Kevin, I think we all really appreciated hearing about, you know, your journey and your big successes as a leader in both the Orpheum and at Quad Cities. But what would you say has been your biggest area of growth, um, maybe more personally than professionally? What's the biggest lesson you've learned? Primarily the mustache. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, throughout that you've taken away from these experiences. That when you first start out, you're not good at something. Um, no matter how much you think you know or how much you actually know, like you are not good at something when you just start out. And so it's realizing that there is a lot of growth there. When I look back and I think about my start at the Orpheum Theater, I thought at that time, like I had a crazy level of confidence and thought I was really great. But looking back, I mean, there was a bunch of missteps that I made. And that's a natural thing. Like one people, like people don't tell us that when you're just starting out or you're just leaving college, you're just getting into a new role, that you're going to suck at that role for a while. Like it's going to take some time to get better at that. And I think learning to accept that and learning to embrace that has made a lot of difference for me. Um, so I think that's one area of growth. I also think I've had a lot, a lot of growth with the way that I talk with people and the way that I lead. 
Um, so the start of that was reading a book by, I believe her name is Kim Scott, um, called Radical Candor, which essentially like there's a lot in that book, but essentially it's just open and honest communication and like why you should have those difficult conversations. And really it's a, comes from a place of, of love and caring. And so when you have those difficult conversations with your team, it helps them do better and honestly makes them happier in their job. And so having that knowledge, um, changed the way that I, you know, talked with my team for the longest time. I had that business mindset where it's like, Oh, like you are not friends with these people. Like these are your employees and there's that big divide. And I, I don't know. I think that like, there's a shift that's happening or has happened. Um, and it's okay to be friends with your employees. Like there's obviously a boundary there, um, but it's okay to, to care about them. And so I think those two areas, I think are the biggest growth that I've made. And that has made the biggest difference. And I'll argue that it's not just okay to care about them, but it's important Necess to care yes. about them. And it's a, it's a necessity within that. hundred percent. Yeah. And I wish more people took that approach today, even though it is changing, we're seeing a lot of change within our industry. I just recently heard a, a business basically saying the opposite and how, how it's detrimental to become friends and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it's still prevalent out there. Brian, Kevin, thank you both for sitting down for the interview today. Katie and Danielle, thank you for chiming in and filling out the out here at the end. Uh, Kevin, it was great to know more about you, more about your background, especially your puppetry skills. So thanks for sitting down with us today. Everybody catch us next time here on There's No Business Like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanhoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslife.com. Do I sound out bus I-ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. What's that? That's What's you. that? That's a Kevin. <laughs> That's a... <laughs> What's that? That's Kevin. I'm Kevin. <laughs> and this is a llama. Kevin can do a goat voice. Yeah, do your Kevin goat voice, do Kevin. Do your goat voice. I, I do a goat voice. Except I only know one line with the goat voice. I've already done it. Goes, I brave rainstorms. I brave snowstorms. Wait, I could see your lips moving. That that wasn't very oh, believable. Sorry. sorry. Was that a good goat voice, or have you heard better? Better. Better. I think Amos, what you mean is it was perfect. You've heard better, or that one was good. That one I heard better. <laughs> I'm really feeling the love in this out.